This Saturday recording is of our regular Sunday service, December 16th, 2018 at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, thank you for being here this morning. My name is Sam, and uh, I'm going to pray as I always do before I preach. And this morning I'm going to pray a little bit differently. Uh, I found that sometimes when uh, my prayer life feels dry or rote, um, that it's very helpful to pray Scripture. Uh, It is very helpful to pray the prayers in in Scripture, some of the prayers of Paul, for example, or the prayers of others, Um, usually dead saints long gone. And so there's a little book that I often go to called The Valley of Vision. If you've never seen it, you should get one, and it's a collection of prayers from old saints. It never ascribes the actual prayer to anyone individually, but they're Puritan prayers and others. And I'd like to pray this morning one of those prayers, and I tell you this in advance because it's a little old Englishy. Uh, for those who love the King James, you'll just love it. Um, but it is a very meaningful prayer. It's a deep prayer, and we can learn a lot from the prayers of others. Um, and so if you would bow with me, I'm going to pray a very old prayer as we begin our service this morning. O Lord, we commune with Thee every day, but weekdays are worldly days. And secular concerns reduce heavenly impressions. We bless Thee therefore for the day sacred to our souls when we can wait upon Thee and be refreshed. We thank Thee for the institutions of religion by use of which we draw near to Thee and Thou to us. We rejoice in another Lord's Day when we call off our minds from the cares of the world and attend upon Thee without distraction. Let our retirement be devout, our conversation edifying, our reading pious and our hearing profitable, that our souls may be quickened and elevated. We are going to the house of prayer, so pour upon us the spirit of grace and supplication. We are going to the house of praise, awaken us every grateful and cheerful emotion. We are going to the house of instruction, give testimony to the Word preached, and glorify it in the hearts of all who hear. May it enlighten the ignorant, may it awaken the careless, reclaim the wandering, establish the weak, Comfort the feeble-minded and make ready a people for their Lord. Be a sanctuary to all who cannot come. Forget not those who never come. And do thou bestow upon us benevolence towards our dependents, forgiveness 
towards our enemies, peaceableness towards our neighbors, and openness towards our fellow Christians. It is in the name of Christ our Savior we pray. Amen. Well, I realize that when the text was read this morning, some of you may have thought, at Christmas? Really? But you'll find that if you spend any time with us, we typically go straight through books of the Bible and an occasion stop for a Christmassy sermon or something. But I am convinced that every sermon is a Christmas sermon because every sermon should lead us to Christ. But as we work our way through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, uh, we've been exploring what characterizes this thing that we're calling the normal Christian life. And the first three chapters of Paul's letters were full of thankfulness to God about this church that he has written to, this young church plant that has only existed for a couple of months at this point, that he only spent three weeks with, but he had sent Timothy to check on them, and he'd received a positive report of their faith in God and their love for one another. And surprisingly, uh, both their faith and their love has increased in the midst of tremendous affliction and persecution. And that faith and that love has actually served to encourage Paul in his own affliction. Well then, beginning in chapter 4, as we saw last week, Paul begins to shift his focus and he recalls previous instruction that he had given to them when he had spent those few weeks with them. And he had taught the Thessalonians how they ought to walk. How they ought to live in very tangible and practical ways so that they might please God. And so inspired, and I say inspired because this is not just a letter from a guy to a church. This is the inspired Word of God to His people. And as we read these words, these are God's words to us, convicting us, comforting us, changing us. So these inspired words... He declares that God's will for His people, God's will for the Thessalonians, God's will for the church, God's will for Restoration Road, and you as an individual Christian is for your sanctification. And that word sanctification, to be sanctified, is a very big way of saying being increasingly restored. Restored to who God designed you to be. And that comes through Christ. So after writing last week about the restoration of our sexuality in a very perverse and broken culture, he now turns to address the restoration of our love, which I know when you hear that, of course, Christians are to be loving. And I'd like to explain that a little bit because he speaks about it quite a bit. Beginning in verse 9, this is what he writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 4. He says, Now concerning brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and more and more. I added a little bit of mores. 
It's interesting that Paul tells the Thessalonians that they have no need for anyone to write to them about love, and then he proceeds to write to them about their love. But he says they, he really has no need to write to them because they have been taught by God to love one another. This is not just a matter of man's instruction about love that Paul had come and said, be loving. We tell that often to one another. We probably tell that to our children. Just be loving. Paul says that they've been taught by God to be loving. Now, if you were with us in the fall, I went through a uh, short series called Am I Saved? And we talked about what happens to the heart of someone who is saved. What changes in the heart? And we talked about dispositions towards God and towards sin and towards one another and towards His Word. And really, what I try to communicate as an umbrella for all of those things is that the salvation of God changes our love. It changes who we love. It changes what we love. It even changes how we love. God Himself in Scripture is described as loving. One of the most frequent phrases in the Old Testament is His steadfast love endures forever. And there's entire Psalms where that's pretty much the only thing that's said. But God is not simply loving. The Bible says that He is love. That He's the very definition of love. He's the very source of love. And Romans 5.5 tells us that when we are saved, God's love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So, as the Spirit indwells us, the, the perfect indwelling of love in us over a lifetime is perfecting us. And I would argue, as Paul, I think, does here, making us more loving. Now, Jesus Himself declared in the Gospels that the entire law of God could be summarized by two commands. To love God and love people. In John 13, on the night that Jesus would be betrayed, after He had washed the feet of His disciples, including the one who would betray Him, he had said that love for one another is what would identify them. It would be the distinguishing mark of their discipleship. The Apostle Paul had a lot to say throughout the New Testament. He wrote half of the New Testament, 13 different letters. His letter to the Galatians, he wrote that one of the fruits of the Spirit was love. In his letter to the Ephesians, he wrote that the church was being built up in love. In his letter to the Corinthians, he wrote that having everything without love is having nothing at all. He went so far as to say love is the only thing that will endure forever. Not even faith, not even hope will endure. And he goes, that doesn't make sense. Of course it does. As we're standing before our Lord or Savior in His presence, it's not going to take much faith to believe in Him. Nor are we going to be hoping for anything anymore. But love will be there. So here in this letter to the Thessalonians, Paul writes that increasing in Christ's likeness is about increasing in our love. 
Yet, the way he talks about increasing love is different than perhaps we expect. He certainly could say, as we often do, let's just be more loving. Without much qualification, we assume people understand what that means. Just be loving. Be loving, be loving, just be nicer. Did you know that under the umbrella of sanctification, under the umbrella of being restored to who God designed us to be, which is exemplified and, and made put on display in Christ, that the process of sanctification includes a turning away from sin and a turning toward Christ. It includes a putting off of the old and putting on of the new. As Jeremiah the prophet wrote, it includes turning away from drinking dirty, toilet, muddy, yucky water and drinking of the wonderful, clean, pure fountains of Christ. So overall, we see that Paul is pleased with the report of the Thessalonians' love for one another, but he begins to show concern for a particular group of people who are not increasing in their love, and in fact are being quite unloving, he's going to tell them to turn away from that and turn towards Christ. Without naming names, which is really interesting. Because as you read through Paul's letters, you'll see he names names often. He calls very specific people out at different times. He says, stay away from Bob. He talks about a friend named Demas who at one time was on his team and said, oh, Demas has abandoned me and gone after the world. He names names often. But here he is not naming names, but the letter, as we read at the end, is being read publicly to the church. So he assumes that the people who he's addressing are going to be there. Almost, you know who you are without naming them. And I think in many ways, because we are all in danger of becoming the kind of people that he's addressing in this letter. We read stuff like this, or I'm going to be very specific about the kinds of people, and we think to ourselves about other people. As I preach, or as we read the Scripture, like, yeah, that does sound like Bob. I'm so glad Bob's here. You know what? I'm going to link this sermon to Bob after it's over. Don't do that. Let the Word of God implant in your own heart. Let the, let the Spirit search your own heart about where it is that God is convicting or comforting you through this Scripture. Without naming names, he addresses three different kinds of people. I'm going to call them the maniacs, the meddlers, and the moochers. And these three kinds of people are hurting the church. And when you think of the church, think of Thessalonica. Think of this local group of disciples who gather together, who love one another, who know each other. They're hurting the church and they're hurting the witness to the Gospel. And so Paul urges this entire church, in particular these people who know who they are, to be ambitious to work and to strive towards a certain kind of loving and at the same time, to work against other kinds of loving. 
so that their love might increase and they might be restored to who God designed them to be. So the first people he addresses are what I'm calling the maniacs. Telling them in verse 11 to aspire to live quietly. Now, by maniac, I don't mean crazy. In fact, I simply really like alliteration and I needed an M for it to work. I'm an English teacher inside a preacher's body, so just go with it. I like alliteration. What I mean by that, if you were to look the word up, you would see it probably means something different than you expect. By maniac, I mean someone who's really overly zealous and quarrelsome. Somebody who's really loud, who enjoys strife, who most specifically spends much of their time talking about themselves, their thoughts, their opinions, their words, their deeds. Now, during World War II, the British government used propaganda posters that said, keep calm and carry on. I'm sure you've seen the cultural appropriation of that idea to apply to all kinds of things. Well, it started back in World War II, and they were posters that were used to help boost citizen morale as bombs fell on them. Stay calm, push forward. Stay calm, I know it's difficult. Apparently, a few people in the church of Thessalonica are making a lot of noise and chaos about something. So much that Paul basically is like, stay calm. Chill out. It'll be okay. More than likely, as you read different opinions of different scholars, which I spent a lot of time doing this week, like, what are they so upset about? What are they getting so loud about that they have to be told to be quiet? And as you read First and Second Thessalonians, you'll see that Paul talks very often about the return of Christ. And the kind of assumption is that they are really afflicted, if that's the right word, by second coming excitement. Really excited about it, passionate about it, so much so that it has made them quarrelsome and unloving. Which is, in many ways, often at the heart of a quarrel. There's something I'm super passionate about that very well may be true, that may be good, and I want to argue about it. So to them, he says, aspire to live a quiet life. It's loving. The Bible says it's loving to live a quiet life. And I would propose that that is becoming increasingly difficult to do in today's world. To live a quiet life. In fact, our culture, and when I say our culture, I don't mean that big bad thing out there. I mean that thing that we as a people have created. But our culture fosters, it seems, the very opposite of a quiet life. Because our culture, I think, compels us to quarrels. I think it compels us to quarrel specifically through things like social media. Perhaps you're one of the people that doesn't partake in social media. I would say that's becoming rarer and rarer. It may become more frequent as people step away from it. But as it is, more and more people are spending more and more time on social media every, every year and less and less time face-to-face. 
The average person I read spends 135 minutes per day online, which is an increase over last year and an increase over the year by that, increase over that year, and you can keep going. It is only increasing. Right now, if it stays where it is, that will mean that the average person will spend more than five years on social media in their lifetime. I think five years of time, like start day one and go five years and never get off. That's what we're talking about. You realize they only began to really track this information back in 2007. That's because around 2006, back into 2005, our culture went through a major transformation. During that time, it experienced the formation or the explosion, because some of these things were already formed, of services like YouTube, Facebook, MySpace, Twitter, all in that same amount of time. And all of these platforms encouraged their participants to share. Share how they were feeling. Share what they were thinking. Share what they were doing all the time with everyone. That's at the heart of it. What was once a passionate conversation amongst good friends became a debate among total strangers across the globe. And then the liking of our comments. Oh. Someone liked me. Or the increase of followers. Somebody's following me. Literally gave people a dopamine hit that began to feed an insatiable hunger for more of me. That's literally what's happening today. It made sense then in 2006. You may not remember this. I remember this because I was teaching high school at the time. It really surprised me, and as a high school teacher, I'd always be looking at magazines and different things like, ooh, I could use that in class, and Time Magazine has their time, or person of the year, every year. And that year, they did something that was daring, very different as their annual person of the year. And on the cover, they put a mirror, and they declared the person of the year to be you. And if someone lifts the magazine, they go, oh, I'm person of the year. Because that was the year of the YouTubes and the Facebooks. And we wonder, how has our culture become so narcissistic? Today's world is not quiet. It's very quarrelsome. One social commentator noted that cyberspace is a very argumentative place. On social media, you can see university professors arguing with climate deniers. Politicians arguing with anti-austerity protesters. Famous atheists arguing with anonymous Christians. Celebrity fans arguing that Taylor Swift is better than Nicki Minaj or whatever. All with good intentions and passion. We're not encouraged to be quiet. Not even controlled. Or even slow to speak. On the contrary, everything tempts us towards antagonism passive-aggressive interactions, and narcissism as we share our opinions loud for the world and essentially make a name for ourselves. We have become digital blowhards who excuse our loud lives as being passionate about what we care about. Some accidentally, and others quite purposefully, live to draw attention to themselves. The very opposite of what I would say Paul is saying as a quiet life. Live a quiet life. Don't be loud. 
But a decision to lead a loud life is a revelation that you believe life is found in you having a voice in the world. Paul seems to indicate that true sanctification makes us bolder, but quieter. And we, for some reason, have a problem with those two going together. A quiet life is not thinking less of yourself. It's just simply thinking about yourself less. Like Jesus. Jesus was passionate. Jesus was bold. But He was not loud. He refused to loudly draw attention to Himself more than one time. But He devoted Himself to quietly directing all things and all attention to God. And you go, why? Why was that? And I would suggest Jesus tells us. He tells us that He was more interested in making noise in heaven than He was on earth. And what kind of noise are you talking about? Well, Matthew 15, 7, Jesus says it this way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What was he excited about? What was he passionate about? Making noise in heaven where they rejoice and they throw a party as people are saved, which does not necessarily require a great noise on earth. And so the maniacs he addresses. He says, live a quiet life. Avoid quarreling. Don't draw attention to yourself, but point to the one and only Savior and King Jesus. Well, Paul also addresses meddlers, which is connected to these others. And he says to them, to mind your own affairs. You see, constantly thinking about ourselves and loving our own opinions doesn't actually mean we don't ever think about others. It just changes how we think about others. We begin to believe the best way to love somebody is to get involved in all their problems. Since we're friends, they must want me to speak into their life anytime they say something, post something, or I hear something. There are many who call themselves being the devil's advocate. Now historically, I was looking this up, it was interesting. This is actually an official position in the Catholic Church. It's the person who not in a negative way, but is described as the one who argues against a candidate for sainthood. So as someone's put up for sainthood, they kind of talk about possible character flaws or whatever issues they might have that would not be um, you know, validating for them to be a saint, and that is the devil's advocate. We use it today to describe how we help people understand themselves by challenging their perspectives or speaking into their situations without ever being invited. I'm just being devil's advocate. And some genuinely, I think, want to help and maybe even do help when they do this. That's not the kind of person that Paul is addressing here. Because this effort isn't always a means to help someone. In fact, it's often another way to love ourselves by sharing our view. The Bible calls these kinds of people meddlers and busybodies. And I've found that 
Very few meddlers and busybodies are very self-aware. It's kind of like greed. I've never had anyone come and spend time with me to confess they think they're greedy, nor have I had anyone come to me and share as they're struggling with being a meddler. I think we're blind to it. Our busybody is a person who basically meddles in the affairs of others. And the Bible has really strong words for these kinds of people. 1 Peter 4.15 warns us, make sure that none of you, speaking to Christians, suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Meddling's not that big a deal. Well, Peter puts it next to murder. So maybe it's a bigger deal than we think. And instead of thinking about Bob or Tina right now, maybe we should evaluate and test ourselves a little bit. See, when people have convinced themselves that the world needs to hear all of my views on all things, which I'm sure none of us believe that. Well, no, of course not. It makes sense that the real people in your life probably need to hear them as well. Sometimes this meddling is under the guise of loving help, regardless of whether or not that help has actually been asked for. The busybodies convince themselves that their constructive criticism or their discerning wisdom or their brutal honesty is what this person needs to get on track. It's loving. In the church, and I mean just among Christians, what often looks like compassionate concern can just feel like a critical intrusion. And busybodies really um, very rarely go before the Lord to ask whether they should speak into that situation. I don't know if you've ever done that. Something comes before you, and it's really not your business, but it's been there like, oh, I, I, I should probably say something. I have an opinion on this. How often do we take that to the Lord? After first service, I was told uh, by one of our members, they said, you know, an old pastor once told me that you'll know whether you should get involved or not, in, especially in terms of confronting someone on their sin or what you've learned, by whether you feel like you're going to enjoy it or not. And if you are taking a lot of joy and it's not difficult for you to confront or to speak into someone's affairs, you probably should pause and take that before the Lord. Because oftentimes when we don't go before the Lord, what we're sharing is very little Scripture and a heck of a lot of opinion. For the meddler, unfortunately, the emphasis is not how can I lovingly point this person to their one and true Savior who can save them from their sin. On the contrary, for the meddler, it is often, how can I save this person with my wisdom from their ignorance? You see where the direction is headed. It's not to Christ. It's to yourself. Often in an effort to get good advice so you make sure you help, you know, in the way that really is helpful, the busybody feels it important to share this news 
with as many other people as they can so that they can speak into what they should say. Sometimes this is cleverly disguised as a prayer request. I'd like to pray for Bob. I know he's really struggling with X, Y, Z, and I just want to know what to say to him so that he can be held. Like, okay. Said alone in a prayer closet is one thing. Said in a group of 15 people is entirely different. That's called gossip. It's sin and it's unloving. But we excuse ourselves in the name of help. I just want to, you know, help with your affairs. Ultimately, a decision to meddle and wrongly involve yourself in the affairs of others, I think, is often a decision to assume the role of the Holy Spirit in another's life or in the life of the church. If I don't say anything, no one will. If I don't say anything, like, since when has the Holy Spirit truly needed your help and you trust that the Holy Spirit will speak even if you don't? We must be careful to wrongly assume that our words are where the power of sanctification reside. And I realize I'm preaching this just two weeks after I encouraged the church, using Paul's example, to ask one another about our faith and to share with one another and to pray for one another. Sounds like a contradiction. So to clarify, let me just say it like this. I believe minding your own affairs is not merely minding your own business. This la la la, I'm just going to care about myself, la la, no. Minding your own affairs is not merely minding your own business, but it is ensuring that any other business other than your own, any other business that you mind is given to God before taken up by you. Right? It's given to God before taken up by you. So you make sure that whatever affair you are minding is actually what God would have you do in that moment. So that is the meddlers. And again, don't be thinking about Bob or Tina. If there's a Bob or Tina here, I apologize. Those are just the go-to names that I have. Finally, Paul addresses the moochers. The moochers. He tells the moochers to work with your hands as we instructed you. And you think of moocher, and I realize um, many of you are like, well, I'm not a moocher. I don't know anybody. Like, if you were in junior high, you probably were a moocher or knew a moocher at that point, right? We all understand what that means. But it seems like related to busybodies, there's this idleness that seems to be a real problem in the Thessalonican church because he has to address it again in the second letter. Which actually is really comforting to me in this regard. There are some things that take a while for us to grow beyond. I wish sanctification was like you go to bed, having prayed about it, wake up, you're like, I'm brand new, everything's fixed, I don't struggle with that anymore. And especially in regards to our love, we can increase in love for sure. We should grow in love, but that's sometimes a slow process. And by God's grace, He is committed to completing the work that He began. But we see in this second letter, He's addressing the same thing in the church. If you have your Bibles, 
the next letter over, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. You have some very similar themes written to the exact same people. It seems the first letter maybe had only started to plant a seed and hadn't fully come to fruition. 2 Thessalonians 6, I'm sorry, 3, verse 6. He says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Idleness. Keep away from the brother who is idle. Verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Verse 10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, colon, here's the command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. <gasps> that doesn't seem very loving, Paul. It's very loving to the church. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. Verse 11, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Isn't that interesting? There were those in the church of Thessalonica who were mooching. Who were feeding off of the work of others and not working themselves. There is little explanation as to why this is happening, but perhaps... It's a comfort that it was happening because we see the same thing often happening. It began in the early church even. Paul gives them instruction and an example regarding a strong work ethic. And as Paul clarifies in his second letter, the occasion for his instruction is not related to an inability to work, but an unwillingness. Now, in this church, and I mean in Thessalonica, there are members who were busy bodies, but they were not busy at work. And they think, these busy bodies, that they are relieving the burdens of others by talking. But in fact, they are making all things more burdensome. And again, I want us to consider something. We think that moochers, if you will, or these kinds of individuals are easily identified. But as I said, I don't think we can identify very well. and I think we're self-deceived about ourselves. But consider, this is being read as a public letter to the gathering of the church. And it's assumed that those people are going to be there. Which means that these people are present in the church. They're involved in the church. They're very vocal in the church. They are known in the church. They even see themselves likely as providers to the church. And Paul says, you're parasites. 
Even though these people are not working really, not doing anything to contribute, to provide, they're expecting to be provided for. And that's why the idleness is such an issue. They are what we have come to be known or come to know today as consumers, right? You've heard that word before, I'm sure. It began 2,000 years ago. There were entitled consumers in the church from its beginning, and this is unloving. More than that, consumers work against the building of love for the entire church. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 4, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when an arm is lame, the body is not being built as it ought towards love. The problem of consumerism began well before the church of 2018. It's interesting, this week, um, I recently met a woman who came into our church. Uh, she had some questions, not about our church, but actually about the churches she attended. Um, she had had some difficulties in this particular church. I'm not making this up for the purpose of illustration. It really happened. Like, mm-hmm, sure. No, it really did. Um, she was struggling. They had some problems, and she was really trying hard not to complain. She wasn't trying to be critical. She really wanted to understand and just kind of get some counsel. Uh, and so I helped as best I could. Uh, and in the midst of the conversation, she said, I'm, not, I'm really not trying to complain, and I don't plan on leaving the church. I've been there for 30 years. And that was the biggest thing that struck me from that conversation because that's such a rare thing to hear today people are not plugged into churches for 30 years they're just not they're not committed to being long term it's just not something in our culture uh, that is common anymore i tried to find statistics which are kind of hard about this, but it probably goes without saying that changing churches is a fairly common experience today, and staying for the long term in a church is more uncommon. And that's probably related to the expectations of the culture, whether that came from this new generation or who knows. There's research out there that asked questions like, you know, how do you view the church? What is the church? And they said, well, The church is a vendor of religious goods and services primarily existing in order to serve its members. That's how it's generally viewed. Further research statistics show that most people, when they're looking for a church, have a list. Good preaching, attractive worship, welcoming leaders, effective programs. You hear the pattern, right? And at the heart of that is that many people, most people perhaps, have expectations to receive from the church and very few expectations or plans to give. We approach many relationships the same way. That's the way many approach marriage today. I'm getting married to get a certain benefit, not to give of my life to another person. So Paul publicly admonishes these people and says, work with your hands. And that's kind of a foreign thing for us today because we've kind of transitioned to a knowledge culture. And what I mean by that is is we live in an age where people uh, value their minds more than their muscles. 
Things have shifted a little bit, right? Uh, many people spend a lot of time on a computer now and not out plowing fields. So at the heart of what Paul is commanding is this. It's be loving by contributing more than words. You realize these people are contributing words. Lots of them. The thing about working with your hands, right? They're so... Uh, for me, as I said, as a pastor, I spent a lot of time speaking with people. I spent a lot of time reading books. I spent a lot of time uh, on a computer and, and studying. And one of my greatest joys, although I like, don't like my honey-do list, I love my honey-do list because I get to work in the yard. And there's something tangible about working with your hands that's cathartic, especially for me these days. Where you, you do something, you go, hey, I... I I see something was produced, right? The thing about working with your hands is that there's a real tangible contribution for your effort that you can see. And without your contribution to a collective family, things get burdensome for others. So working with your hands, that idea is this willingness to get involved in a way that you can be felt, in a way that will actually in, 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 like change your comfort level or ask something for you or something more from you than just your words. It's a willingness to get dirty. It's a willingness to give more than you're going to receive. More than that, I think working with your hands means you actually have skin in the game. You heard that phrase before, I'm skin in the game. And the thing that I have found is that when someone actually has skin in the game, when they begin to contribute something more than their words, they gain a very different perspective about the game altogether. I've seen that especially when um, individuals become leaders. And they have been very critical of leaders before, and suddenly they are a leader and getting criticized. They go, oh, uh, I see things very differently now. And they begin to show more grace and more love to both their critics and those they were critical of. We see that with parenting, right? As your kids get older, when you didn't have kids and you watch the people in the grocery store, oh, when I have a kid... My kid's not going to freak out like that. I would just do X, Y, Z. I would spank them. I did. Yeah, right. I remember, and this reminds me, Candace, you may not remember this. Years ago, before we had kids, Candace and Aaron and I and a group of people were in the small group. And I remember Candace talking about spanking one of her kids. So like, oh, they did this. They spanked, uh, he spanked him. And then they didn't. We spanked him again. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I said, you know, Kalen, Kalen, when we have kids, we're never going to do that, right? Candace was 100% right, right? You, you learn. You learn, like, I didn't know what I was talking about, but I was sure critical, right? It's like when you, your own parents, you're like, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry, right? When you get teenagers, you're like, I understand now. And so I found when people get skin in the game, everything, when you don't have any skin in the game, and all you're contributing is, Here's what I think. Like, great. Why don't you get in the arena and see what it's like? And you'll see what happens. 
your perspective will change. I actually believe you don't get more hardened, you get more softened. And you become more loving. And that's why Paul is trying to address these people. He's not just trying to like pick on them. Otherwise, he would have called their names out, right? He's trying to help this church increase in its love. Because as people begin to contribute and put skin in the game, the consumer becomes the contributor. And the entitled becomes quite grateful for what they have. And the critic becomes the coach. So, in conclusion, it's without question God's will for us that we mature in Christ and that that means that our love increases. It increases in its frequency and in its capacity and even in its potency. God has called us to live a loving life, which means fighting against some of the unloving tendencies of our culture or our flesh and fighting for the love that is like Christ. And we ask, like, well, okay, I realize he wants me to make me like Christ. Like, what? why does he want me to be loved? Why, do, why does he want me to live a quiet life? Why does he want me to mind my own affairs? Why does he want me to work with my hands and contribute to the family and the ministry? Well, I think the final verse answers that question very well. Verse 12, Paul says, all these things so that... Look for the so that's in Scripture. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You see, the pursuit of the restoration of our love leads to the edification and the strength of the church. And the edification of the church and its love for one another leads to the evangelization of the world as they begin to see a people that look very abnormal in this world because of the love they have for one another. We don't become a more loving people by evangelizing the world. In fact, we evangelize the world by becoming a more loving people. How do we do that? How do I just become more loving, right? We hope because this is how, at least I do with my kids, be loving! Just be loving, please! And that might work for a little bit. You might be able to threaten you'd be loving or else, right? Which seems to work against what we're trying to accomplish. But I would say it is setting our minds on the love of Christ. The love that Christ has for us. You see, every sermon's a Christmas sermon. Because it should all lead to Christ. God so loved the world that He gave his only Son, ultimately so that we might return and be brought into the presence of God's love again. Jesus entered the world as this little baby. And He lived a relatively quiet life for 30 years. He had emptied Himself of all glory. And when He finally did speak, for three years He did everything He could to draw attention to God. To point people to God. As for minding his own affairs, consider that even though Jesus really could help everyone, he didn't. He didn't heal everyone he could have. He knew the best way to love was to fulfill the ministry that he had been given, which led to the cross. 
That's where Jesus literally put skin in the game. He put skin in the game as the only truly entitled person that ever lived. And he devoted himself to serving and dying for those that he loved. That's love. Maniacs love to fight. Meddlers love to gossip. Moochers love to take. And grace can cover all of that and transform us. The cross of Christ invites us all to surrender to His love and devote ourselves to being a people that don't point to ourselves, but point to the one true Savior. And, catch this, loves in such a way, loves in such a way that they are willing to provide and to give more love than they ever expect to receive. That's what Christ, that's Christ-like love. You realize that, that the love that Christ gets, we can never reciprocate that. The depth of love, the breadth of love, the height, there's no way we can love Him as much as He's loved us. And that is how we're called to love. All too often we love, I'll give if I get. I'll love if I can guarantee love. That's not Christ-like love. As we increase in Christ-like love, we will love knowing that we've been loved and we may not get love in return this way. Let us all not grow weary in doing good for a due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us pray.